We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Almost as an homage to a simpler time, the football ruined a beautiful weekend. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smithy, Blackman Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Hey, if you think my voice sounds bad now, you should have heard the instant reaction. Um, yeah, it, it will heal, presumably. I, I mean, I hope. Um, the football ruined a beautiful weekend. And, and, and while that's very sad... You know, in a way, it's nostalgia, right? Because that's what the football used to always do. It used to take a beautiful weekend and just absolutely screw the thing up. Um, and, and it has done that. So I won't bore you with the, oh, here's how amazing the weekend was. I'll just do a quick brief bit on it. Um, went to New York with Paul and Clive and uh, Andrew from the Arscast. Unfortunately, Tim, who you'll be hearing from momentarily, was not able to make it. He will be at the next one and the next one after that. So uh, there's still plenty of time for Tim to sound like I sound. Um, Friday was just a beautiful day in New York, sunny, warm, spent the day on rooftop bars drinking drinks that destroy any credibility of mine uh, from an alcoholic beverage standpoint, but just had a, a fantastic time. Late in the evening, started all over again on Saturday, met just the most incredible people at Stout in Midtown, the thing that lets you know that maybe your podcast is something special is not that the podcast is special. It's that the people who listen to the podcast are absolutely amazing people. You know, I use the word community here and we see what the fundraiser is doing, but then you actually meet the people, whether it was Union Chapel last year in New York this time or wherever it's been. And everybody's been wonderful. So thanks to everyone we met and thanks to everyone we haven't met who make this all something special and who we will hopefully meet in the future. Uh, Andrew DJed late into the night. Um, I will forever now see a very tired Paul bouncing like a pogo stick to Toto's Africa at three in the morning as the vision in my head when I hear that song. And uh, yeah, flight home yesterday after the game, trying to think more about the non-football memories. But this podcast will be about the football exclusively. So uh, thanks for putting up with that little synopsis there. And thank you to everyone who's a part of it. And we'll be a part of uh, another one in the near future. And joining me now to talk about the football, unfortunately, is Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stillmanator. Hello, Tim. Hello there. So uh, let's do this. Let's cover the actual football a bit. I think there's a lot of 
where does this mean? Where does it leave us? How do you feel? You know, what's your emotion in the moment? But but let's get to how we got here. And I think it's worth prefacing this by saying City maybe gave us a little warning because they went 3-0 up against Leicester. And at 3-0, job done. And they played like it was job done. And Leicester not only got a goal back, but they peppered them a little bit. But because it was three, it never really felt that dangerous. Um, if you look at the XG, and I know people say score effects, score effects, and all that kind of stuff, but like Leicester actually out XG'd City because they spent a half battering them. And I'm sure it'll annoy Pep, but what do you care? You won by two clear goals. Arsenal get a two goal lead, maybe don't do the last bit of business needed to put that game away. And instead of it being a, you know, a 3 1 where we had a bad second half, it's a 2 2. So let's talk about how we got to two. Mm-hmm. The funny thing is, I don't know that we were ever playing great in this game, but we scored two great goals. Um, you want to talk about that that early period and and you know a time when I, I thought we had the ten nil incoming. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think we were playing really well in that period. I think Andrew Allen put on Ask Blog this morning something like in the first fifteen minutes, Arsenal completed two hundred and sixty passes to West Ham's twenty six, or Excellent. something like that, and just knocking the ball around. And I, I mean, you're right. Like to all intents and purposes, did we have a chance before we scored either of those goals or those? Yeah, first? yeah. I, I think we yeah. had a half a half chance. I can't remember it exactly. I can look it up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same. I, I, my memory is a little bit hazy, and I was at the other end. Um, so what was going on for the kind of twenty minutes where we were pretty good was, um, you know, I, I wasn't able to see quite as well. But, but yeah, we were knocking the ball around, and it's it was just exactly like last week, you know. And, and I said um, to Trevor, who I who I go with next to me, I said, "This is where you hit the fine line we hit last week because you want your team." to knock the ball around and be confident and one-touch passes and stuff like that. But it's a very thin line before you go into overdoing it. And uh, and, I, and I said, I just said, like, this, this is the fine line we were on last week and we went the wrong side of it. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure there'll be a lot of recrimination about what actually happened. But, that, I, I mean, the opening few minutes was, was blistering. And this is – it's impossible to talk about any, any of this – absent the context of complete frustration and I just I completely agreed with what Arteta said afterwards and it was uh, uh, I'm sure he'll be delighted to know very much in line with my own analyses which was he was asked about the pressure getting to them and he said no because you don't start games like that when the pressure's gotten to you and that's that's exactly what I think like I I think you're cagey maybe you know maybe the overconfidence bit maybe that's a different manifestation of pressure I'm, I'm not convinced um and so you know and, and then like because one of my I guess my bugbears and I probably overdo it because I overestimate how hard it actually is to score a goal in football but whenever Arsenal get on top of a game I'm like score a goal score a goal score a goal like you're dominant mm-hmm. like I accept the periods of the game that like Arsenal don't dominate I accept that I accept that's going to happen in nearly every game but when we are dominant I, I'm just like you've got you've got to make it count. You cannot think that the whole game is going to be like this because it's probably not. And it's also why it's Spurs away in January. I didn't enjoy that first half as much as I should have because for the whole half we got the second goal. I think a couple of minutes before half time, but for the whole half I was like, for the love of God, 
you have to make this dominance count. You have to score a second because you will regret it if you don't. And they did, and it was kind of okay. But and, and so at Anfield and West Ham, we actually did like two goals in the first 10 minutes. That's good going. That's you're dominating the game and you're you're actually like turning that into end product. And then, yeah, and then like I know it's easier said than done to like go and score the third goal and everything. That's how I felt at Anfield. I felt at Anfield go and score the third goal because they will definitely not be like this in the second half. Here, I was less like that and more like just don't mess it. Like at Anfield, it's like they're really good here. They will come back. Like they'll come back into the game. West Ham, I was a bit more like just control this game. Like just don't get cocky. Don't do anything stupid and you'll win. Um, And we got cocky and we did stupid things and we didn't win. And that's, uh, yeah, um, I guess to slightly tie this rant up, (laughs) I'm taking some priors um, into this from Anfield. But you know I was annoyed and have been annoyed by how Arteta talks about Anfield as if it's some like magic kingdom um, <laughs> or like it's Mordor or something. And it's not, it's a football match, mate. You've got, I'm sorry. You've just got to, you can't just say, Oh, it's Anfield and it's special. Like I really think that's the, like that line of thinking him again, putting his trauma from one game nearly 10 years ago on his players, very costly. Cause I don't think they learned the actual lesson that they should have learned from last week. Yeah. And, and like, it's funny because I softened a lot of my views last week as the week wore on, right? Because what happens, in the, yeah, in the in the moment is you're like, oh, we're 2-0 up, we threw it away. We, three points at Anfield would have been huge. And, and then you take a beat and you're like, you know what? They were really good. It was a hell of a football match. A point at Anfield's not bad. You start to soften. But when you do it in consecutive weeks, suddenly the prior week feelings <laughs> percolate, right? They come back to the surface a little bit. I think Clive said it on the instant reaction and, and it, it echoes what you've been saying. In both of those games, we played 4-0 football at 2-0. We did mm. a little bit of that. Now, I'll, I'll come to why I think that's a problem in this game. I mean, it's a problem in any game, but why I think it's particularly a problem in this game and where that went. But I do want to say, you know, in the dominant period, I think the thing that allowed us to dominate and, and be so good is that it's it was the players who are, can most influence a game in a positive way that we're on the ball, right? So Martinelli was on the ball a lot. He was really, really good. Martin Odegaard got on there and was good. I thought Ben White started the game like a house on fire. It was brilliant. Jesus, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and I don't know if this was to compensate for the lack of Zinchenko, but Jesus was dropping really deep. I mean, he mm-hmm. was really connecting the play, and I thought he did so much work. And it, it may be why he needed to come off in an hour. I mean, maybe, maybe he's still just not fully there yet, but I mean – to, to score the, the goal where he does, right? Basically, it's happened at the far post. Having been dropping all the way to midfield, he was doing a lot of running and a lot of work. And in that period, Tim, we were able to get Saka and Jesus and Martinelli and Odegaard on the ball, something that we struggled to do as the game wore on for reasons we'll get to. But so, um, in particular, maybe Jesus's role, did you notice that, that he was, yeah. he was coming really deep to connect? And do you think that that was just his instinct and what he does or or maybe to compensate for that that passing element in in the mid middle of the park that we didn't have was Zinchenko out 
Yeah, I think it's a mixture of both those. I really did notice that again because he was coming towards like our end and it was a bit like, what are you doing here? <laughs> um, but I mean, to, yeah, to, to some extent, he kind of always does that, but he, he was definitely doing that more and particularly early in the game as well. And generally speaking, I tend to think that what happens in the first 10 minutes of a game really shows you what a coach has told a team to do a game becomes increasingly chaotic after that and you probably get slightly further away. But what a team does in the first 10 minutes is usually what they were told in the dressing room. So I think that had to have been deliberate, had to have been a ploy, um, you know, to try and tweak and make up for the fact that we'd lost that controlling presence in Zinchenko. And and Jesus is good in those areas. He's good at protecting the ball. He he doesn't tend to waste it. Um, you know, he's he's pretty good um in those areas and and obviously we wanted to keep our uh, our wide players high um and so that you know it, i guess because what do you what what have we lost i'm sure we'll go into this without zinchenko and saliba it's it's like centrality is yeah. a little bit of what we lost and you saw it in thomas party's performance i thought that was probably his worst performance of the season um and and that's because he's he, he's Often, not often, he's sometimes quite loose in possession, but that's because he does the high risk reward thing. And mm-hmm. it matters less when Saliba and, Saliba and Zinchenko are there because they're the controllers. That's not as much what he's there to do. But without them, I think you just started to see some of those edges fraying. Some of those things that are always present in his game that don't usually matter. They start to become an irritation. And I'm sure that Arteta realised that something like that might happen. So I do think it was deliberate to kind of drop Jesus back a little bit, get that control. And look, what are the first subs he makes? He brings on Trossard and Jorginho. So clearly there was a preoccupation, um, and I think the game spelt this out anyway, with having a bit more control in central spaces without two very, very key players to us in central spaces, particularly in terms of build-up. So I, I think that has to have been deliberate, particularly because it was happening so early. It's not like like Jesus scored in the six-yard box. It's not like he was getting pushed back. He was very willingly running back. And so that has to have been instruction. Yeah. And I think you know, we, we sometimes think of football just about individuals, but it's about partnerships, right? It's about the dynamics that build between players. And if you look at two players who I thought had, it's not that they were dreadful, but well... We can come to that, but it had games that were a lot less assured and a lot less controlled than you'd usually expect for them. And Gabriel and Party, they were playing without mm-hmm. the partner that I think has made their job easier this season in Saliba and uh, Zinchenko, right? Do I think Gabriel makes that error after the Party giveaway of going to ground there if he's got his boy Saliba standing next to him, you know, having his back? And it, it's not about whether holding was good or bad. We'll come on to that. It's more just the the partnerships and and who you trust and how you come to play in those partnerships. I mean, yeah, Zinchenko averages 65 passes a game at 88%, and Saliba averages 69 passes a game at 91%, okay? Um, yeah. If you just look, and, and I realize that neither of them have played, and these are these are basic stats. I get that that's not an advanced metric. It's just that that's the amount of possession you're taking out of the team, right? That's the amount of control you're taking out of the team. And what you're replacing it with are players that are less assured on the ball, right? 
less good at, at controlling a game. I mean, Kieran Tierney averages 79% pass completion versus Zinchenko's 88. And mm. Rob Holding, you know, he he averages about 85%, which is not, you know, not, not that bad, but, you know, a lot less of a passer. I think it's very fair to say whatever you think. Yeah. Of him. So you're taking that control. And when you're 2-0 up, what does Arteta want, right? The What do you say? 700,000 passes, 300, however many hundreds of thousands of passes it is. If that's how you want to play, then you need those players in there that will pass. And, and as we'll come on to, and we saw this at Anfield, these teams realize if we let them have the ball in our final third, if we let them engage their press, we're going to get killed. So what do they do? They just go over. They go long, and then they try to push us back. If you've got Zinchenko and Saliba there, you're going to get slaughtered because someone, whether it's White or Party or Saliba or, or Zinchenko, is going to get on the ball one touch, flick through around the corner, whatever it is, and we're out. You take one of those pieces out and holding, you can do it a little bit. You take both of those pieces out, and I think suddenly it's very, very hard to play back to front. And that's that's what I think we struggled with the most as the game started to get nervy. Yeah, definitely. You referenced, I was going to reference it as well, uh, Arteta's quote from last season, the 300,000 passes that's in the it, opposition half. That was after Watford away last year, and we got away with that one. But what happened in that game? We went 2-0 up, we were comfortable 2-1. 3-1 up, comfortable, it went 3-2. And Arteta was furious afterwards because we did in that game exactly what we've done in the last two away games and we just gave the ball away too cheaply um, in crucial areas. And I think it's really significant that he put Xhaka at left back um, for the last 10 minutes. Wouldn't be surprised if we see that again um, if if Zinchenko's uh, not back. Um, but also, it's it's. I think um, there was something else I was going to say and I've forgotten it. But but yeah, like the whole like uh, that's it. Yeah, with the partnerships, we saw it in attack as well, right? Martinelli went seven games without a goal contribution when Enketia was up front. Yeah. Trossard and then Jesus come back in, and he's got he averages a goal contribution every game ever since. Like, mm. what does that tell you? That's not to bag Enketia per se. It's just styles about... make teams. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's about partnerships. That's that's what like Enketia is not a bad player. Holding's not a bad player, but. Um, they're not as good as the guys they're replacing. They're not bad for. I, I don't. Honestly, I don't think there's any player in the squad at the moment I look at and go, "Oh, you're a bad. Like you're just a bad player." Do you know what I mean? For this level, there are a couple I think we've outgrown, um, who I think are probably going to go this summer, and that's that's kind of fine. Like that's the next phase of our squad build. I do think two of them started this game and I think one of them um, didn't get off the bench again um, and I think all three of those players are probably not longed for this Arsenal world but um, yeah so it, it's it's it, you're right it is about those partnerships and those understandings and those complementary qualities and that's what I mean about party it's not it's not a, it's not it's not a coincidence that he had quite a poor game without those pillars around and and I think that's what you've seen here that's a bit frayed around the edges and do you remember again I said this I think a few weeks ago like when Holding came in for that Palace game and he was great he played really well in that Palace game but you know I was a bit like let's see him four or five games because that's what happens when your squad players come in usually takes four or five games teams start seeing a bit of a weakness they start like you say West Ham did it Liverpool did it they start identifying that weakness it's the same with Nketiah Nketiah came in for Gabriel Jesus the first four games or so we were like what were we worried about but over time it cost us and and it's the same here I think with, with without Saliba but then you add in 
you know, Zinchenko not being there as well, it, it, it was just it was just too much for this game. Easy, the easiest way to think about it, without bagging on the players, just to say this. If we had played 31 games this season with Holding and Tierney instead of Zinchenko and Saliba, would we be top of the table? I don't no. think so. Is it because they stink? No. We'd just well, be a little bit less good. Those players that, played in the Europa League and we went out in the... Uh, again, not yeah. just those two players, yeah. but you know what I mean? We yeah. played the Europa League with our squad players and we went out in the, in the round of 16. That's just... And by the way, this is true for everybody. I mean, if, you, if uh, aside from City, who has title-winning starters on the bench and title-winning starters on the pitch, you see, and I know I've referenced it so much that it gets tedious at this point, but the season Liverpool did win the title, all the players that you would name as being essential to them winning a title started like 35, you know, played like 35 or more games that season. Mm-hmm. You know, I think like, so, you know, a couple of them started 38 games and I think to win a title against a team as deep and as good as City, you don't just need to be very, very good. You need to be a little bit lucky with injuries. And like last season, we saw it too. You know, we we were good enough to be a top four team last season with our best team on the pitch, but we weren't good enough to be a top four team with our weakened team on the pitch. And I do think the Tomiyasu injury has been really, really influential. I don't think you can overlook that because with, with Tomiyasu, we'd have the option to say, you know what? maybe just have a little more control and a little more technical ability. We'll move Ben White back to center back and we'll use Tomiyasu at right back or we'll use Tomiyasu at left back because he's mm-hmm. just a little bit more comfortable coming into those half spaces and being a controlling player than Tierney. Um, Zinchenko's superpower, I've said this before, I, I just think the thing that always blows me away, and, and maybe I notice it more when I'm at a game than you do on TV, he's never more than a yard or two away from where the ball is. Mm-hmm. And so the player on the ball always has a place to give it, a place to go with it. Um, as far as the goals, real quick, by the way, this is what hurts so bad. They're both beautiful goals, right? Um, mm-hmm. The overlap to, to Ben White and the slide across to Jesus, and then that Martinelli cross is an absolute thing of beauty. And Odegaard making the second man run arriving, which I loved it because I was thinking, you know, Odegaard's a guy I think who could stand to lift his game a little bit coming off his Anfield performance. And you've got two goals in three minutes. People at the pub were turning around to me and shouting, you're getting your 10 nil today. And on TV, they're showing goal difference and saying, is this the day Arsenal get? And it's almost like that mentality was on the pitch as well. But like you said this in the lead up to West Ham, you know, they're a team, get, get on top of them early, get their crowd out of the game. Get What was the mood like at the Olympic stadium? Because at that point I had your words ringing in my ear thinking, they got Ghent on Thursday. Something mm-hmm. worth fighting for. By the way, they had lost some of their uh, starters. I think in the warm-up board of Agbana, I think, was was out. So they had to play Carrer at center back. And it was kind of a mix-and-match team. At that moment, were, were you thinking that, too, that they're going to kind of quit here? And what was the what was the Olympic Stadium feeling like then? Because it, it felt like that was the exact way you get West Ham to go away, you know? Yeah, definitely. I, and I was definitely thinking that. I, I was a little bit... Um, scarred by last week because I think we got overconfident at Anfield and I thought, oh, just don't do this hit. But like I said earlier, like at Anfield, it's like they're going to come for you. Whereas, I, yeah, I think you're right. I think you can get West Ham. Well, West Ham just aren't anywhere near as good um, yeah, as Liverpool. Exactly, don't have yeah. the quality of players. So, you know, it, at Liverpool, there is an element of they're going to come after you and there's not that much you can do about it to an extent. Whereas yeah. with West Ham, I think it's like pass the ball around don't mess about and you'll win this game. And I, I also think the, the other reason it really disappointed me is because of all the stuff 
we've spoken about. It's not just that we didn't respect West Ham at 2-0, it's that we didn't respect our own circumstances. But in terms of the actual stadium, I mean, it, it was silent, basically. <laughs> and uh, I heard some uh, some West Ham fans, I was kind of earwigging on one of their conversations on the way back. And it's always interesting to do that, to hear like the other teams take. And, you know, they were like, oh, Arsenal were really good for the first 20 minutes and not after that. It's like, yeah, fair enough. And I heard a woman say, like, I nearly left <laughs> at 2-0 because she said, like, I thought it'd be four or five. And, I, you know, uh, but... The thing is, when you let them back in, then the noise lifts, then the atmosphere yeah. comes up, then it's like, you know, we gave them something to go after. And it made, I, I was reflecting during the game what a funny thing momentum is because, like, I was thinking to myself while it was 2-1, I was like, it's so weird how this is so different to if we'd just gone 1-0 up like two minutes ago. The, the score, the game situation would be exactly the same as it is now. But when you've gone 2-0 up and you let them have a goal back, it completely changes things. And at two, when it got to 2-2, I was kind of saying to myself, all right, we've won the game once and we've chucked it away. Now we've got to go and win it again. We've almost got to pretend psychologically it's 0-0 and that like none of this stuff has happened and it's just been a nil-nil game where we're trying to break them down and maybe we're a bit frustrated and we can build ahead of steam. Like I, I that that's what I was thinking for from two two onwards. I was very much thinking like we've got to like psychologically treat this almost as a 30 minute game yeah. now and just forget everything else that's gone before. Again, easier said than done, but that's that's the position we put ourselves in and that's what you've got to do in that scenario. So I mean at 2-0, it was quiet as a grave uh, around there. And it wasn't even that noisy in the away end, to be honest. Um, it's a little bit because of the dynamics of it. It's very split. Like for, for people who don't know, they've essentially got an, a, a giant trampoline um, behind one of the goals because it's an yeah. athletic stadium. Um, and that trampoline is actually a divider between the the lower and upper tiers. So, like the the away section is completely like bifurcate. It's two completely different sections. Interesting. So it it is difficult, more more difficult to create an atmosphere because you have your supporters are divided up by this enormous trampoline, um, which is just so weird. But um, and, and it's a difficult place to generate atmosphere because it's yeah. all so far away from the pitch because it's an athletic stadium. Yeah. So, but, but the main reason I think it was pretty quiet in the OAM was just because the game felt not done, but it was on that track. You know, it's just like, ah, oh, this could be like three or four. And everyone comes into the game tense and a bit excited and City have won the next day and you're carrying that tension. And then it goes after 10 minutes and you're like, oh, wow, this is uh, this is pretty easy, isn't it? And And much like the team for supporters, it's then difficult to raise yourself again for the last half an hour. That, that Like it was still very quiet. And I think it was just because like the bad thing had happened, you know, it's like, yeah. oh my God, like particularly within the context of the penalty miss just before the equaliser, everyone's just going, oh my God, it's happened. Like the bad thing has happened. And once the bad thing has happened, like if it's 2-1 with 10 minutes to go and they're pushing, you get a great atmosphere from the away fans. It's tense. It's not mm -hmm. that pleasant, but you get it. You get the kind of, come on, come on. Like, But once the bad thing happens, you, ex you experience the disappointment. So basically, we won this game 
way before the end and then we threw it away way before the end and it created a very weird atmosphere because those two things happened well inside the parameters of the game so there actually wasn't that much tension or adrenaline it was like interesting game over oh fuck the bad thing has happened and all of that happened so quickly yeah it, it i think i think the thing that is hard for me with these last two games is that they're two games that Yes, we threw two goals, two goal leads away. But you can be two goals up without having dominated. You can have a, a basketball game and you've gotten the two goals. You know what I mean? You can have a, a very open game. But I think there were games that we were sort of dominant in. I, I know Liverpool had some, had a couple of good chances, but I still felt on the balance of play we were dominating Liverpool and we were dominating West Ham. And what makes these two games hard when I look at them as a set is they then shifted to periods where we lost control of the game, and could not really get it back. Mm -hmm. um, and so, all right, well, so we get the two goals. They're beautiful. We're dominating. They get the penalty. It's a really bad piece of it's – a, it's a really bad play from Thomas Party, but it's hard, right, because that's the what he does. The whole thing is bad from everyone, from the goalkeeper. You want to break it down? Sloppy passing everywhere. That, that was right in front of me, and you could just see – and, and again, I referenced um, a moment at Anfield when it was 2-0, where I said like Arsenal decided to hold a little rondos on the edge of their own box. Yeah. And they got it was loose, but they got away with it. And I immediately started thinking, oh no, they've gone into the they've gone into the overconfident zone. This was it, like unbelievably sloppy from everyone. I think it's a sloppy pass out, um, some really poor touches, and then Partey, I know that's what he does, but again, like he undercooks the the attempted like chapelle as they call it i think or mm -hmm. chapeau depending on your language <laughs> and um and and why does he undercook it because why does why do why do players undercook anything in that scenario it's because they're they're too loose yeah they're too loose they're just like oh just knock it up here and they're not taking it seriously and they're not focused and you know if there was one west ham player who who wasn't in the mood to give up on this game. It was Declan Rice. Mm -hmm. um, I think largely because he's a really good player um, and their best player by probably a million, billion, trillion miles, their best player. But also, I think he wanted to prove something <laughs> in this game. Um, that could be me superimposing after the fact, but I think he came into this like a train, really, and... And like you're not gonna, you're not going to take the piss out of Declan Rice anyway in midfield, like just because he's got a West Ham shirt on, um, yeah. and I really don't think you were going to do it in this game. So I, I think just lamentably sloppy from Partey, but not just Partey, ev everyone involved. They're not what? in position when they do give the ball away, and yeah, just like zero out of ten for everyone concerned. I think. And then I, I almost feel bad for Gabriel in a way because. He goes to ground and realizes almost immediately, I should not be going to ground and I should definitely not put a challenge in here. So he he, he tries to out. back out. He, he, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's his knee that makes the contact with it's Paqueta, right? Yeah. Uh, um, Paqueta. Paqueta. Yeah. yeah. And uh, except I don't think he even makes the contact. I think sort of Paqueta puts his foot in. Yeah, yeah. The, he the sees space. it coming, and and it's a theatrical fall. But it, look, it's a penalty. I think mm -hmm. personally, but whether it is or it isn't, like if Gabriel doesn't go to ground, they're holding just cleans it up. Um, I watched back a bit of this game in little moments, and the thing that I noticed, and I, I think I noticed it in Liverpool game too, though, because it's something that 
Clive is called out a lot when we play with Rob Holding. And you don't notice it as much when you're in your dominant phase, but you notice it more when you're in less dominant phase. Defensive line height is just that little bit deeper when he's in there. He's more comfortable if he can get closer to his goal where he doesn't have to worry about having to make that run with a guy who's going to be on the last shoulder, which, you know, Saliba is just so quick so he can move up and up. And I think Saliba pushes you up the pitch. And I think, you know, and, and granted, this was a very quick turnaround of possession, but I just think we're always that little bit deeper when when Rob Holding's on the pitch. Um, and mm-hmm. so party gets the ball a little bit deeper and we're, you know, we, we give away the penalty. Um, but then you, you don't have to shit yourself at two, one, you still have the lead against a bad team. That's relegation threatened. And sure enough, but oh, by the way, I'll ask it. Do you, do you think that should have been a handball in the build up to their penalty? Um, I've seen it back and it's very close to his body. I don't know that it's conclusive. I've seen like one gif on the internet that like makes it look really bad, but it's like a frozen yeah. moment in time, basically. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I just I don't have any energy for it. I think handball is such a like such a vibes um, mm-hmm. kind of call. I, I just I don't really care to be honest. I think yeah. could be given, could not be given, and they're both the right decision. I think. And to be fair, we get a penalty ourselves, right? So like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah then yeah. you have the penalty, and this is the thing. You're gonna you're gonna miss penalties, and I think Mikel even made that point. You know that you, you don't you don't score every single penalty. So yep. eh, the problem is when you do miss a penalty, it feels like you should never miss a penalty. So you're gonna analyze it that way. Uh, Salah missed a penalty in very much the same way Saka did in this game, and Salah's an yeah, excellent yeah. player. But when you miss a penalty to make it three one in a title race, people are gonna say, is it pressure? Is it this? Is it that? Do you have any take? on Saka missing a penalty. I mean, it is hard because he's our best player and, you know, we're, we're certainly has an argument for being our best player. Then the questions are like, well, should he be our penalty taker? Well, it's the first one I think he's missed for us. So you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it, it just, it happens. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Again, this is where I completely agree with Arteta's assessment. Like this stuff happens, like penalties get missed. Um, sometimes that's, that's like a detail. I'm not particularly obsessed about like obviously it's frustrating because if you score that I think it is game over um and, and so obviously it's, it's very frustrating but like it happens like for me it's much more about what else happens in the game um essentially like the bigger details about not respecting the opponent at 2-0 give it like giving them that first goal like giving them that goal, I used that very, very advisedly. You did. Yep. That that's frustrating. The attitude at two 0 is frustrating. Not listening, not learning the lesson of last weekend is frustrating. And you know, trying to compartmentalize it as Anfield as though you're powerless in this stadium, which is just fucking bricks and mortar for fuck's sake. <laughs> um, and and like. All of that's frustrating. Missing a penalty that 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 can happen to the best player in the best game. Lionel Messi missed uh, utterly lamentably. I'll never forgive him for it. But he missed a penalty in the semi-final Champions League semi-final against Chelsea, and they lost. And mm-hmm. Chelsea won the Champions League, and that cost Barcelona um, retaining the Champions League in 2012. And we all had to watch Chelsea do it instead. Like 
no one's going to tell me that ring a bell, but okay. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah. No no one's going to tell me that like Messi was like at fault for that or deserves. Well, you remember there used to be a narrative. Messi's one weakness is he's not a good penalty taker, right? And and now he's sticking the cup. Yeah, exactly. Like, so it, it it happens and it happens to the best players and it's happened to Saka before, uh, you know, um, a massive moment as well. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not particularly, I'm not worried about it. Put it that way. Well, here's the other thing. Go create other chances. Go create exactly. other chances. You're two one up. Go create other chances. Don't let them get to two two. Don't you know? Go get a third. It's not the eighty ninth minute. It's like what the fifty first, fifty second. Yeah, like there's loads of time left. But as the way football, as it happens, because the way it is in football, we miss a penalty, and it feels like I know it's not immediate. It feels like they just go up the other end and score. And this is where I just got to say this. I know he is, he is a great guy. He's a guy we all really, really like. And when we were a team pushing to try to be fourth place in the league, I think he's a guy who was really, really good enough to be that. I don't think Kieran Tierney can be in this team. No, same. And not because Kieran Tierney's like, could Kieran Tierney like help? I'm trying to think of a good analog that, that, that doesn't sound disrespectful, but like, could Kieran Tierney go, go to, to Newcastle? Probably New, Newcastle, maybe. Yeah, or I was going to say like a Crystal Palace and help them be like a solidly Premier League level mid tableish team. Like absolutely, and maybe even elevate them. But like, I don't think his 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 short range passing. I don't think is particularly good. He wants to overlap and run the touchline, which is not his remit here. Arteta is asking him to play the Zinchenko way, and I, I do think you know what makes a player look really bad when you ask them to do things they're really not good at you know what i mean um like i I think i I mean lacazette is actually an interesting example right lacazette was a penalty box striker that's what he was to to some extent in france like he'd be in the penalty box he'd finish he's doing it again in france right now but he had to play almost like midfield for mikel and as a result he was never getting in the box and we were frustrated with him and like maybe it's a bad analogy but i thought tierney had a pretty poor game generally and he does kind of go to sleep. He loses the run, yep. Bowen's run. And we rewatched the second half over on Patreon of Liverpool. And he lost a runner in that game too. And he had his hands all over Salah right before we almost go up and score at the other end for the Martinelli uh, pass to Saka, where it, it really is very close to being a penalty. And I also think there are some players that are used to being starters their whole career. They've been starters every time they're available, they play. He doesn't ever run a games. It's a really, really hard way to get introduced. So I'm trying to caveat this because it's a player that I really appreciate in some ways, but who mm. to me looked like a problem in this game. And especially when you take Saliba out and then you also take Zinchenko out and you replace them with the two players we did who stylistically, talent aside, stylistically couldn't be more different that's when I think it really starts to break down. And I think that was the story of the second half, but the goal is goal is not a good look. He just lost the run. It's, it's not. And also, you know, to your point, holding kind of jogs out. I think line the line's, height, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think the line's deeper as well. Mm-hmm. Look, this is probably um, a day and an occasion uh, for stuff that's probably been in our heads for a little while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That perhaps yeah. you don't say when results are good and things like that. And, yeah, this is one of them. With, with Tierney, I think you're right. Like defensively, just often not switched on when the ball goes over his head. In a one-on-one, I think he's great. I think when he's facing up a winger, I think he's very, very good in those situations. But when he's like jogging out and you've got a turn or the ball goes over your head, I, I think less so. Like his level of awareness isn't always great. And 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 I'm with you. Like 
and this is not to say he's a terrible footballer or anything. He's clearly not. But like we cut like the the next kind of backup left back, as it were, has to at least be able to do a passing impression of Zinchenko, and and even if that means Tomiyasu, which is which is still different but it's not so different. Um, and I think you're right. I think to some extent it's uh, not setting up Tierney to fail. That's that's too strong, but th- this isn't who he is um, and, and it's probably never going to be. But yeah, there were times like I got really annoyed with him where there's just a point in the second half where he just hoofs the ball up in the air yeah. and we're under pressure. And it's like, you've yeah. got, you've got, you can't do that. You can't do that. Like, I'm not necessarily asking because like Zinchenko is kind of unique, right? It's going to be very difficult to find another left back that can do like who isn't a left back who basically came up as a number 10. It's very difficult to find those players. That's a very unique uh, code breaker of a player, but like Tin is so opposite, like so opposite that it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. And um, there was, there was a point, um, I think when we played Oxford in the FA Cup, I might have mentioned this on the podcast before, where the ball just breaks loose in central midfield and he runs onto it and he smashes it out of play for a goal kick to Oxford from about 45 yeah. yards. And I turned to my mate and I just said, he can't play in this team. He can't play mm. in this team. And, and you know, yeah, again, maybe that's a prior I'm bringing into it. But this really, to me, this told me why Arteta re- like barely trusts him with any minutes at all. Yeah. I, I mean, it, we, I actually said this to you on Twitter, but I think it's an interesting analog because Cancelo was one of the players of the league last season. Uh, he, he's been a dominant player in the Premier League. He wasn't in good form this season. Pep let him go. And what did he do to bridge the gap for a while? Put Bernardo Silva left back. Because yep. he said, you know what? The player that plays that role for me has to be able to control games, has to be able to possess the ball. And Bernardo you know, got absolutely torched defensively a number of times. So I don't know that that was going to work, but it's the point that he he understood, you know, the role of that player needs a certain kind of thing. And the, I think it's so ironic because Shaka at left back was a thing that Mikel Arteta did that drove a lot of people crazy because at the time we were playing more of a traditional left back and it, it, it changed the way we attacked. He couldn't overlap. But now, if you said to me, who's the player that can do the Zinchenko role, Tierney or, or Shaka, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I do not want Shaq in that position. That's not where I'm saying he's best, but I think mm. it's closer to that. Um, it makes more think, sense now than it did last season or the season well, before, right. certainly. Yeah, yeah. And and, and it, it it's just one of those things that as West Ham decided, you know, we're just going to go long and then we're going to chase and then we're going to force you to play through us from the back. You could see a little bit of a deeper line, a little bit less control. There were times like holding, there was one where he's under no pressure and the ball's coming to him. And he just like, weakly heads it forward right back to a West Ham player where you just know Saliba's like trapping that, taking it down, out it goes to party or out it goes to Ben White. And it, it it's, you know, you said it, right? Like, I think, because I'm this way too. When you're the one making a point, you know what you're trying to say. When you're the one hearing a point, you you want to rebut it. And it's not a question of who's a good player, who's a bad player. Everybody should understand at this point that as your team gets good enough to challenge for a title and lead the Premier League for the entire season, you've elevated your talent level and elevated your skill set and highly specialized your your roles in the team. And when you take those roles away, even with players who are pretty darn good, you get a little bit less good. And when you take two of them away who are very specific in the style and the, the quality they bring, then I think you see it. And a tactic like what Liverpool and, and West Ham did 
of we're going to go long, we're going to go over you, and we're going to push you back is much easier to do when you start taking pieces out at the back who are specifically good in tight spaces at playing around pressure. Think of how many goals we have this season where it started with a Cruyff turn by Saliba and a big switch. Yeah, yeah. Or a, you know what I mean? Or a, a, a laser line-breaking pass into Odegaard from deep. I, I, can, I, can't, I can't tell you the goal, but there was one where Saliba got it in the right deep corner and he like Cruyffs it and switches it big out to... Martinelli, been, I think. Yeah, it might have been yeah, a Martinelli. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just a beautiful back-to-front move. Now, Rob Holding, for all of his quality, can't do that. And that's the stuff we needed in this game. Let's um, let's do this. Let's, I, just, yeah, I, yeah, I just wanted to add to that slightly as well. And this shows you that maybe we're a bit ahead of schedule because our rebuild isn't done, right? Last season, we had maybe 10 players. Um, I'm not sure I count Lacazette. We needed that striker. <laughs> but we had a, like an 11 this year, we've gone up to like, particularly after January, we've gone up to that 15, 16, mm-hmm. you know, trying to develop someone like Vieira to be 70. Like, we need a couple more players, yeah. essentially, to get to that. We've got 19, 20 players who can start and don't make you anxious. We're close, but we're not there. Yeah, and, and that's why, A, you got to avoid injuries when you're early challenging for a title, right? Because you probably don't quite have a title challenging team. 15 players, you might have 10 or 12. And then the other thing is you might need to play players more minutes because you don't feel as confident in who you can bring on. The subs are a big question for me in this game because I think for consecutive weeks, there's big questions about the impact of the subs, the selection of them and the impact of them. But before we do that, Let's just do this really quick. Um, as you can tell, I take my health very, very seriously. You know, sleep eight hours every night, consume nothing but healthy foods and healthy beverages, and that's why I sound like I've smoked 40 packs of cigarettes this weekend. I haven't smoked in my life. I sound like this because of a life well-lived, but for recovery, this morning and every morning, it's going to be Athletic Greens AG1. It is 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, adaptogens, probiotics to keep you living a healthy life. I gave AG1 a try because I had gut health issues. I had a friend who was taking it for the same thing. He was like, yeah, man, work for me. I tried it. Worked for me as well. But it's also great for uh, energy recovery, right, which I'm currently uh, thinking about very clearly. Um it's also one of these things I should point out that it was designed by an athlete um, and it was designed for athletes initially as like an energy and recovery supplement. So I think, you know, with that in mind, the the other thing is our lifestyle benefits. If you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, sugar-free, whatever, uh, um, well, I hit them all. I'm pretty sure I hit them all. This is pretty good. They're going to love this. Um, it, 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 it's all of that, right? It's It's got very low sugar. It's very cost-effective versus the row of gummies. Like if you have, um, you know, the the gummy vitamins, look on the back, the like second or first ingredient is sugar. This isn't going to be like that. So if a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash vision. That's athleticgreens.com slash vision. Tell them the guy with the husky voice sent you. And if you have a husky voice, but you want smooth privates, I don't know. Is that, is that what you're <laughs> Then you need Manscaped. I can't tell you how many people in New York, it's it, right? Oh, Clive, your tactical analysis is so good. Oh, Paul, your analogies are so great. Oh, Elliot, I really like how you talk about shaving your privates. That's what I contribute, I guess. But 
It's important. It's important because you know it's what I it's what I always say when uh, people bring this up to me is it's something we do. It's something we do, and we usually do it with just a really crappy tool. So this is not a really crappy tool. Manscaped makes the lawnmower 4.0. It is the best purpose built trimmer I've ever used. It's wet dry, works in the shower, long battery life, LED light. It has a guard so you can do other parts of your body. Um, it, it's just a great product for that. But now they also have the weed whacker. And, you know, as someone who is getting to a certain age, I'm not going to say what the age is, of course, but when you get to a certain age, you do start to get some ears, hair, and nose hair. And, uh, you know, the weed whacker is kind of like the lawnmower in that it is a purpose-built trimmer for that part of your body. So the weed whacker uh, 2.0 nose and ears hair uses a powerful 7,000 RPM motor. It also has skin-safe technology, same with the lawnmower. The whole thing is great. You're going to love it all. And uh, all you have to do is go to manscaped.com with code ArsenalVision. And that's 20% off and free shipping. So you get 20% off free shipping, manscaped.com, code ArsenalVision. From below to up top, get the best grooming at Manscaped. Finally, now look, you're healthy. You're well shaved. I'd say you are ready to get a job. Or hire someone. Because when you're interviewing them, they'll be like, wow, that guy's so healthy or that woman's so healthy and so well-shaved. I want to work at that company. And the way to do that is to use Indeed. That's right. Indeed is a hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills. We can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like matching assessments and virtual interviews. Indeed matching. What is it all about? Well, as soon as you uh, sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description. Boom, tiring at warp speed. Candidates you invite to apply through Instant Match are three times more likely to apply to your job than candidates who only see it in search. Indeed does the hard hiring work for you. Sponsor a job, they'll match you with quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description right when you post. With Indeed, you can start hiring fast. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Now, Indeed knows when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why with Indeed, you only pay for quality applicants that meet your must-have job requirements. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring now. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Is that enough of that? Indeed. All right, Tim. You nailed that, but I'm not convinced we nailed the subs. Okay. I don't know. Maybe I'm taking a little bit of my my priors from the Liverpool game into this one. Well, well let's start with Trissard. Trissard is a really mm-hmm. good player. And when he came on, I think he did make a difference. Jorginho, so, well, all right, you know what? Maybe I've got this wrong. I think the Jorginho and Trissard subs made the kind of impact we need. For a while, it felt like we got a little bit of control back in the game. And I, I don't think I've even appreciated how good Trissard is because I didn't want Jesus to come off. And I'm still not sure that was the, the right move. But man, Trissard looked really good. He connected. He he made movements. So he was available. Jorginho was able to get those passes off. And for just a little bit, it, we looked like we had gotten the game back under control. We weren't like creating big chances, but we were starting to get the possession in the parts of the pitch we hadn't been. So that that substitution I liked. I'm curious what your thoughts were on their introduction and specifically for uh, a party and Jesus and the uh, uh, impact they made. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was really easy to follow um, for, for the exact reasons you said. Like, we weren't getting control of the ball. 
We don't have the players in deep positions who help do that. So, yeah, you bring Jorginho and Trossard on and you keep the ball. Uh, Jorginho is probably the closest to Zinchenko um, that we have in the squad, um, albeit obviously in a, a different position. And I do wonder, I mean, Zinchenko had a tight calf, so, you know, maybe that won't keep him out of the South. I think they said groin, just to, be, groin. just to be accurate, you know. Okay, right well, the manscaped we've, we, oh, yeah, we've all been there. Um, so, <laughs> so, um, like he's he's probably the closest analog to to Zinchenko in the team. It's just obviously he you can't play him at left back, unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, because that's I guess that's one of the things I'm wondering about. If Zinchenko is out on Friday, is you know do we? This might all be too galaxy brained, and I'm certainly open to that argument. I'm certainly open to the argument that look, you just play your backups and try and be as like disrupt as little as possible but I'm wondering if there's a way we can get Jorginho into this team um, if Sinchenko's not there um, just to get a little bit of that control back Um, but I don't know exactly what that looks like because he plays Partey's position and um, I'm not sure as as much as I think Partey had quite a poor game I'm not sure I'm advocating taking him out of the team on the back of that um, particularly for a home game I've heard he's carrying a little something too that they're managing him which you know we haven't Which, seen that be an issue with him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, has has he ever really been 100% fit the whole time he's been at the club, really? Um, and, and I think, you know, this summer, we all ask ourselves a big question about that position. But, you know, may, maybe the, the person he was up against uh, in the West Ham midfield answers that question a little bit. But, um, you know, like, how c- can we get Jorginho into this team if Zinchenko's not there? And, like, you know, what does that look like? Does that look like Xhaka going to left back and Jorginho being one of the, like, left eight feel, probably feels uncomfortable um, for him, a bit awkward. Does it mean him being at the base and party being one of the eights? Maybe that's a bit awkward. I don't know. But that made hella sense to me. thought Jorginho absolutely did the assignment. I thought it was a very, very good sub. I think he can be happy with how he contributed because he was doing that Zinchenko thing of, Give me the ball. I'll give it back. Give me the ball. I'll give it back. Give me, and you know, I, I, he barely gave the ball away. Um, there was just that one attempted through ball at the end, which was a bit crap. Um, so that made a lot of sense. And then Trossard, same deal. Like Trossard is almost like a forward version of Jorginho in that respect. Like he's control, retain, give him the ball. He's not losing it. You'll get it back. Um, and, and that gave us our control back. And and I think what that double substitution did is it stopped West Ham going on and winning the game 3-2 because it was transitional, it was harem scarum, it was long, we couldn't get the ball. And if we'd have continued much longer, we could easily have lost the game 3-2. I think Jorginho and Trossard coming on pretty much take, took that possibility out. What it didn't do was actually help us to create chances um, and so, yeah, m- maybe we could have done something else. Maybe Trossard could have come into Xhaka's position, um, for example, and we keep Jesus on. But then we don't know, like, is Jesus having his load managed? Is it a question of he was always going to play 70 minutes? I think that's quite possible. If that's not the case, then I'd love to have seen maybe Trossard for Xhaka um, and Jorginho for Partey and have that controlling player but maybe not up front when we need a goal, which is, I hope that doesn't sound too critical of Trossard because he's not a striker. He's a false nine. He's a link player. But at that stage of the game, it's 2-2, 20 minutes to go. 
I think you you just need that little bit of chaos to try and create something, and and maybe we lost that. So yeah, mate, mate, look, Jorginho, great sub, did his job, brilliant, well done. Um, but and and so did Trossard. But I just wonder if we could have done that without sacrificing an attacker like Gabriel Jesus. Yeah, I mean, I, I felt. And I, I know Clive felt this very strongly that Trissard came on and, and made a really positive impact. And I, I think he did in, mm-hmm. in the sense of we got back on the ball a bit and got a little more yep. control of the game again. But from 56 minutes to the end of the game, we had three shots. Yeah. He and was in two, he was in the two center, were weak headers. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and that's that's fine. That's kind of what you want from him in that position. But um, you know, you've got Jorginho and Trossard basically about 10, 15 yards away from each other. And that's lots of one-twos bumping the ball off. And yeah, you keep the ball, but then Trossard's not exactly standing in the penalty area um, waiting for the ball to come to him. So, and, and that's probably what we really needed at that moment, or at least at least maybe we do this for 10 minutes and then Nketiah comes on or something. And, you know, maybe you just use 10 minutes to get the control back and then, yeah, then take, maybe do like Nketiah for Tierney, move Xhaka to left back, put Nketiah up front. So you've got someone actually in the penalty area, you know, we could have, we could have done it a slightly different way. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would also say just that the way the game was going, the the like for like substitution of, of Trissard for Jesus to play that role and and then Jorginho for Party like I understand it right I understand it mm-hmm. and I think it did some of the things we needed it to do but I really felt at that point that you could see we needed to change the pattern of the game and the way we were being attacked and so like I, I think it was an opportunity to make a, a systems change is a little bit too strong but it changed the dynamic with a different kind of player on. Um, you know, and and so while we did get our foot back on the ball, that all the things they were doing still worked kind of going long, pushing us back, keeping us out of the you know the, the final third. We didn't have a lot of deep possession at, in that stage of the game. If you look at like our our pass map, um, I don't think I have final third touches, but if you if you just look at where we had the touches in, in that period of the game. There's not a lot of final third touches. There's not a lot of penalty box touches. And it. the one thing I really would have thought, especially at 2-2, is, well, we're going to pile on the pressure, and they are going to have to withstand a hell of a lot. And it never really felt like that. So a couple of things on, on the next set of subs. First of all, do you think he waited too long going till 85 minutes um, to make the next sub? And what did you think of Nelson for Martinelli and Vieira for Tierney? Because that, that was a set of switches that I... I didn't like as much. I mean, granted, by that point, it's the 85th minute. So. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think they were both kind of Hail Marys. Nelson for Martinelli, they're both very similar types of player, um, really. And, and I think it was just a bit, well, let's try someone else and maybe we get another Bournemouth moment or something. Like, don't get me wrong, I, I don't want to over-index dex that too much, but I, I think that was just a like-for-like swap and it was just a, let's just try something. Do you think it's weird that he did it right as we're standing over a set piece that like Odegaard would be the one taking? And he, you know what I mean? Like, the, I'm not saying Odegaard was brilliant, but it was kind of like the Inketia well, for Odegaard. Yeah. That yeah. that was another complete hail mary. It's the 89th mm-hmm. minute. At that point, they're yeah. probably like, okay, we're just going to try and smash it into the box as soon as we get it. I, mm-hmm. I think the, the the interesting one, like all of the other 
something are really explicable the interesting one was the like slightly jazzy or i mean i mean inketia for odegaard is a jazzy kind of sub if you don't do it in the 89th minute if you play the last 10 minutes like that then that that's a that's yeah. a, a different kettle of fish but this was this was a it's the 89th minute we might get the ball in the box once or twice more and we want inketia there um but the Vieira for tierney one that that one's much more interesting to me because it meant Xhaka going to left back and because, once again, Emil Smith-Rowe not trusted to come into this game, and I think um, I, I think that's ominous. I, I, think, uh, I think I reached that conclusion a little while ago, actually, but I, I'm really in the, I don't think this guy has a future at Arsenal anymore um, kind of way of thinking. Um, but, you know, but not just... And to an extent, this was a Hail Mary as well, right? It's like, okay, Vieira's, at least in theory more creative than Xhaka, but he didn't want to take Xhaka off. He wanted, you know, and, and that's why I wonder if we'll see it again, the Xhaka at left back thing, because it was clearly like he wanted Xhaka on the field more than he wanted the idea of like, maybe Tierney will overlap and smash across into the box. Like he, he discounted the idea that he wanted that rightly or wrongly. Like Tierney has attacking qualities and good ones, but he decided they were dispensable in this game. And what he actually wanted was he still wanted that kind of inverted left back. He like to him, that's so, so, so important to this team. And that's why Tierney gets very few minutes from the bench, even. So that that's that, that's the one for me. Like, why Vieira and why not Smith Rowe? You just have to assume at this stage that Smith Rowe is not pulling up any trees in training or anything like that, and and that to me, it's interesting to me just because the Jacker at left back thing. That's where he went, Arteta, and so you know the question then becomes, will he go there again? And then the other one is a bit Vieira, where it's like, well, he hasn't really done it this season. He's done it in a couple of moments. He came on at Wolves, and you know he 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 made quite a big contribution there for Jacker, but again. Hail Mary territory, really. It's like, okay, let's see if Vieira can do so. I, I, I don't think he necessarily thought Vieira's going to do something. I think when he brings on Jorginho and Trossard, he has a, a lot of trust. We've lost control. These guys will bring it back, and they do. That's why that is like the, the easiest substitution to follow. Nelson for Martinelli is just a straight swap. Enketia for Odegaard in the 89th minute. I mean, who gives a fuck what you do in the 89th minute, really? Put the centre-backs yeah. up front. But it, it's the Vieira one because, because of the Xhaka bit and also because of the, you know, okay, I'm not 100% convinced that Vieira's going to do anything for us because I'd have put him on in the 70th minute if I was. Um, I was convinced Jorginho and Trossard, that's why they come on early, but Vieira few minutes to go. Let's just see, shall we? Maybe he can make a point. Maybe it can be another like Nelson Bournemouth moment. But yeah, that that one did feel a bit Hail Mary. But at the same time, if he doesn't do it, a hundred percent we're sitting here and saying, why didn't he bring Vieira on? It's so, so hard. This is why you'd never want to be a manager. I know it's cliche, but it's true. Because here's the thing I'll say. I think he did it at Anfield and I think he did it again here. I think these were changes to make changes. I don't think he, like, sometimes you see a manager make a change and you're like, that manager knows the solution and he's putting the solution on the pitch. And sometimes you see a manager make changes and you're like, manager's not sure how to solve this. Yeah. Yeah. And like, to be fair, I think the Trissard and Jorginho changes felt kind of like, I see where the issues are. And well, 
Jesus was not an issue. I have the players to fix this. Right. right. Yeah. Um, I need a little more control. Jorginho's going to, you know, pass at 95% and not give it away and party's a little off his game, fine, whatever it is. But I think I would have liked to have seen him stick longer. I know it was late, it's 84th minute, but like Odegaard even not having a good game, I still think has it in him to make the key contribution late. Martinelli, like I like you, Reese Nelson. You've given me one of the moments of my lifetime. Martinelli has the quality to still win a game late more than I think Nelson does. The Vieira sub for me, like, do you think the Smith Rowe thing is a blind spot? So look, it's almost impossible at this point to not think that Mikel is not super pleased with Emil Smith Rowe for one reason mm-hmm. or the other. Now it could be similar to the Martinelli situation when Martinelli came back from his knee injury that he's just like, he's not fully fit yet. He doesn't have the burst. He may know something about his body that we don't know that's keeping him from feeling like he can use him. But aside from that, I can't help but think, you know what? Love him as a player, hate him as a player. Emma Smith throws a chance to come out the Olympic Stadium and score a goal from nothing or, you know, roll one in from the top of the 18-yard box or catch it sweet. Like, he just, he has that in a way that I'm not sure Fabio Vieira has that. Um, maybe even a way that Reese Nelson, who has done it, and Reese Nelson looked fine when he came on. Um, maybe even more than in Kenya. I mean, Emil Smith was he our second leading scorer last season or whatever it was? Like, um, do you think it's a blind spot? I mean, it's certainly a concern for his his Arsenal future. And let's be clear, I trust Mikel Arteta with where he's taking us, right? But we, yeah. we drew a game we shouldn't, so we're going to have some questions about decisions. And that's a question that I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it definitely is. Um, I mean, he he can't be completely not fit, otherwise he wouldn't be in the squad at all. But he's been back for months now. He's been back since January, basically, and yeah. we've just seen so little of him. And when we've, I think what's been really revealing as well is when we've seen him. We've seen him in quite random positions. Like he came on at Spurs away in January. I think that was his first game back three months ago. I think he came on as a false nine. Um, and don't get me wrong, I didn't massively over-index that at the time. It was just like, okay, the game's basically won. Inketia's knackered. We don't have anyone else. <laughs> like, yeah, fine. But then he came on, uh, was it against Leeds or Palace? Like, and he was on the right, and he's yeah. come on on the left. And do you know what I mean? Like, sometimes it's a bit like you're like you're not actually being primed for this role. Essentially, what's happened here is the game is won, and we're not using you because we want you. We were using you to protect the players we do want. Like there's a pattern to how substitutions are made. And again, Jorginho and Trossard, they're not the first names on the team sheet. They're not in the starting eleven, but they still have quite defined roles um, within the team and within the squad. And they're the first guys that are going to come off the bench. I think when you fall into that side, and, and Tierney's fallen into it as well. Tierney only comes on when it's like the 88th minute as a, like a time-wasting sub or maybe to protect Zinchenko. I don't think Tierney ever comes on because Arteta thinks this game needs Tierney. I want what Tierney brings. It's it's like you fall into that kind of almost time-wasting time, wa- time wasting or protection subs. And, and I think, like, I mean, Smith-Rowe's not even there, basically. <laughs> he's like, he's he's not even in the time-wasting protection, like Vieira is in the kind of Hail Mary, like Vieira and Nelson both coming on ahead of him. That is incredibly pointed for someone who this time last year, basically him and Martinelli had the left wing on timeshare last year. It was one in, one out. Um, Like nowhere near that now. Like 
this game, like managers show you what they think of players in these moments. And, you know, Tierney comes off. Um, that shows you, sort of like, we're desperate. We need something. Like, in moments of desperation, that's when managers show you. And so Tierney coming off shows you what he thinks. When we played Fulham in August um, and we were 1-0 down and he made, Arteta made a pretty bold double sub. It was Tierney that came off. Like, yeah. And so uh, the reason I'm bringing up Tierney, because I think Tierney and Smith-Rowe are basically both in that cluster where it's like, I'm not using you unless I absolutely have to or because the substitution is about the player that's coming off, not the player that's coming on. And look, maybe it is a blind spot, but again, I can only, and I don't think it can't just be that he's not fit because he's been back for months now. Like, you know, there has to be something else going on. I I don't imagine it's a fallout because when you fall out with Mikel Arteta, you don't sit on the bench. Yeah. (laughs) You go and and train on your own. Uh, And then, you know, maybe you get your contract paid up, but yeah, I can, I can only imagine. And look, maybe as well in uh, Smith Rose, sorry, maybe in that Lakonga trap of, we saw something on all or nothing about him (laughs) eating too much Nando's, which Every player might confess to something like that. And now we think it's every a thing, day. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, but we saw it with Smith Rowe. And so we think it's a bit of a, a bit of a thing. And I guess there have been like, you know, fairly alarming comments about like, you know, when he said last season, like, I don't eat chocolate or Nando's or, or anymore. And you're like, you were doing that? Like, what were you thinking? <laughs> like, and, and, you know, look, uh, may, maybe all players like sneak a chocolate bar here and there. I don't know. I, I kind of doubt it. It's difficult without, you know, being in their houses all the time and the police said I can't do that anymore so I can't get that information for you but do you know what I mean like I've, <laughs> I've just like I've always I think I've always detected always a slight lukewarmness um, from Arteta towards Smithrow because when he comes into the team as a 10 um, you know that first time under Arteta we immediately sign Erdegaard and then what does he do the summer after he signs Fabio Vieira. What does he do in January? Trossard. Like those are three signings. Filling in all of Smith Rowe's positions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Though, like maybe you make two of those signings. One of them, if you really believe in the player, you don't make all three of them. Yeah. If you do, and I, I think this is just—I think this is a culmination of something that was already probably in motion. Yeah, and like. <sighs> You can have two reactions. You have the emotional reaction of being sad because he's a player I just, you know, I like. He's an academy kid. Like, I'd like to see him yep. succeed. Um, then there's the football reaction, which is our level's going massively up, and we can only go there if all the players we have can go there with us. I do wonder if he's a victim of a little bit of circumstance, too. Like, if Reese Nelson doesn't score a winner at Bournemouth and have a nice little cameo there, is Smith Rowe the one who's, you know, is is, is that cameo, yeah. has that bought Reese Nelson a higher place in the pecking order you just you don't know yeah, yeah. what's driving these decisions one of the things that i think well, well let, let me ask you super quick i don't want to spend a lot of time on this but like bakayo saka never comes off he never gets subbed he always stays on right i don't think this was a he never has a, a five out of ten he just doesn't mm. but i don't think it was his usual eight or nine out of ten um is this a game where maybe trissard for saka you know, or or something like that, where you let Jesus cook for a bit, and you, you Saka's got to be exhausted. I mean, look at the minutes he's played this season. Look at the pressure he's constantly under. 
everything feels like it's on his shoulders. Was this a game to maybe let let Saka not have to play ninety, given that you know I, I don't think he had his his absolute best form going. You know, no, I I think no. you keep Saka on in this. Like, did he have our only shot on target in the second half? No, not from the penalty, unfortunately. But you know, just like a nice bit of combination play, he doesn't like catch the shot. Um, as well as he might have liked, but that was the only time we really opened them up, and it was him. I, I think he's too. I just think he's too good, and I think now, particularly now, he's developed his long range shooting. Like even if he's not got, like he didn't have. Um, who's the West Ham left? It was it Cresswell yesterday. I can't remember who was playing left back for them, but he he didn't. You know they doubled up on him, and he didn't really get a lot of change out of their fullbacks. But mm-hmm. like even if he can smack one in from 25 yards, which which I think he can now. Um, yeah, no. Yeah, it was no Cresswell, by the way. But yeah. but yeah, because ultimately I think the thing that's hard for me is, like Troussard, I thought, gave us back control, but I think he had no shots, no key passes, right? No shot assists. Mm. Like I can't see a scenario where we play the last 30 minutes against West Ham with Jesus on the pitch and don't create something. You know, I just, mm. I don't, he, he's a player. I think it is really hard to keep quiet because he's so tenacious. He's so dribbly. He's so in the box, you know, he's so around the box and I, it, not that Saka isn't right, but I, I, yeah, yeah. if, if Saka is in the category of a player, you just never take off because he's too good. I think Gabriel Jesus should be in that category too. And so, you know, you, you have to make hard choices. Um, it is tough, right? Cause Trussard is the one player I agree that we have on the bench that I think is starter quality and could come in for any of the front three and you feel okay about it. Mm. Um, and it's very easy to second guess when you don't get the winner. So that that's yeah. that's why, you know, maybe him for Xhaka, like let's have all four of them on the pitch. Is that a blind spot that Xhaka never comes off? Do you think it's a bit of, I mean, like I get it because that that role isn't just go to the box and score and create. Like it has yeah, to, yeah. it has to do other things. But in a game where you need a goal, like it, to, maybe I'm, this is definitely an oversimplification of football, but that position seems like the one where if you need a goal, adding a player who's more attacker than midfielder makes you more attacky. You know? Yeah, yeah. But then we we did that like because um, we played Vieira there and Mushaka to left back. I, I was fine. It's so so late, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was, yeah. Maybe you know, maybe we should have done that earlier. But yeah, I was fine with that. But yeah, I I wonder. Like Liverpool started doing this um, under Klopp when they when they fight because for a while they only really had that front three and not a lot of backup but once they got Jota into the mix quite often all four of them played um mm-hmm. and Jota was very much that like plug in and play like well we'll leave the front three where they usually are and you just come as a late arriving kind of number 10 when we smash crosses in the box and obviously Trossard isn't that type of player but you know like yeah I, I think maybe the the smarter sub might have been Trossard, Patini, Xhaka to left back and let's have all four of them on the pitch they're all good <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you a bit like you we used at, to do with like when we used to put Wiltord and Carnu on the wings for the last ten minutes, it's like neither of you are winger. Well, Wiltord, I think, kind of was a winger actually, but you know, Carnu definitely not a winger. But it was just like so sometimes the game becomes so chaotic, just put all the good forwards on at the same time. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, City play their four three three, and their tens or eights or whatever you want to call their eights are De Bruyne and Bernardo Silva, and ours are Odegaard and Shaka, and you know, you can see where the little bit of extra oomph is in that duo uh, with City than, than it is with us. Look, it's it's a really, really bad point. We we may have debated and discussed Anfield to death. Good point, bad point was the title of that. 
now I guess about the only, point. Yeah. 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 Well, in retrospect, and, and here's the thing, I, I tried to say this on social media, but I think it's easier to say with words than, well, social media, you're still using words, <laughs> spoken words. Um, then, you know, the limited number of 5,000 characters you can now put on Twitter. Um, and Clive made this point too, a little on the instant reaction. I think we all did. You know what the point of topping the table is? You know what the point of having a six point gap or a three point gap at the top of the table is? You have points you can drop and still win the title. We wanted those points to be Eddie Hadaway or St. James, right? We wanted, we wanted to have the ability, Tim, to drop points in the games we we think are going to be really, really tricky. Anfield away is one of them, and we dropped some points there, but points that yep. we had in a good position. The Olympic Stadium was not supposed to be one of them. So all we've really done is we've taken the points we can drop and we moved them to the games we just played. So that means now we have to go win some games that we might have hoped we could drop points in, so to speak. We've we've used up our cushion. That's really what we've done. And we, we put ourselves in a position where we need something at the end had. So here's a question for you. Is it 89 all over again? Is it too reductive to say this is 89 all over again in the sense that young team, not expected to do it, winds up leading the table most of the season, then throws it away, right? In 89... Was it a loss to Derby? Um, I think there was yeah defeat home defeat to Derby and a draw yeah, with Wimbledon. Draw. Yeah, um, draw at Anfield is certainly neither of those things. But when you're two 0 up, it might be a draw away to relegation threatened West Ham. When you're two 0 up, certainly is one of those. And what it's setting up is kind of what it set up a little bit in '89, which is we probably have to go to the Etihad and, and a draw might do it, but it might need to be a win just because there are other hard games that we have. Um, do you have any 89 all over again feelings about this where we were so high, we were so top, now we're we're feeling a little of the fear and we're going to have to go to a really difficult place and get a really big result to to get it back? Yeah, the the problem for me is that that Chelsea, City, Newcastle um mm. back to back. That that week's going to define it. And now I think we're in a position where um we need to win two of those and draw at the Etihad. Um, essentially, or take seven points at least from those three. I think that's a big ask. Um, and, and, but, you know, um, if you win the league, winning the league's a big ask, so you've got to do that. I have to say, I, I kind of, um, one of the things I was going to say earlier to one of your one of your other points was I'm a big believer in um, quite often your instant gut reaction it's usually about right. Now you need some time to knock the edges off of it, and make yeah. it a little bit less raw. So you don't serve it so hot. Yeah. 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 And a little bit less visceral. Yeah. I shied away from saying it on the pod last week, but you know what? After Anfield, it was the first time I had that little voice in my head that just said, this isn't happening this mm-hmm. season. It's not going to happen because I think the thing is, Seasons have a very definite rhythm and it might be a long time um, since Arsenal were in this position, but I'm old and I remember Arsenal being in this position several years in a row. And at this stage of the season, it is all about momentum. If you go back and look at Arsenal in April 2002, April 2004, April 1998, there were games where they sucked ass in terms of performance. Like there's in 98, we beat Derby 1-0 at home and it was terrible. It was awful. Pressure was on, really tense night. We get 1-0 from a Manu Petit 30-yard goal. We take the three points. No one remembers it anymore. April 2002, we had two games in a week at home to West Ham and Ipswich. 
awful, terrible. We scored in the last 10 minutes in both of them, won both of them 2-0 with late goals. No one remembers the 80 minutes that came before them. I do. They were rubbish. April 2004, we lost the Champions League semi-final and FA Cup semi-final in the same week and then went 2-0 down to Liverpool, but we beat Liverpool. At this stage of the season, it's all about momentum. It's all about momentum. And what teams that win the league do is they put the points on the board and they go home, right? It's not about, like earlier in the season, you want the performance as well. What you get or what you should have in April when you win the league is a series of seven out of 10 games. You referenced it earlier, Man City v Leicester. Nobody will remember that City stopped playing at 3-0 and could have chucked it away. No one will remember because they put it on the board I bet their players don't even remember that game happened anymore. Completely forgettable. That's what you want. Years where Arsenal haven't won the league and they've fucked it up, they trip over their own shoelaces in April. That's what teams that finish second do. And I remember 2003, we went to Villa, for example. We were 1-0 up. We weren't very good. Scored an own goal, 1-1, dropped points. Bolton away, everyone remembers that. We're 2-0 up, 2-2, dropped points. Like, the years you don't win the league, you tend to fuck up in April. You tend to slip on banana skins in April. Teams that win the league do what City are doing at the moment, and they just put the points on the board, and everyone forgets about it before. Like, I completely disconnected from that City game after about half an hour. Didn't even look up the final score till about an hour afterwards. That's how forgettable it was. And they weren't brilliant uh, from what I've seen from the highlights. They, they just did enough. Because it's almost like periodization. Like, um, I remember reading something about how players get given more time off at this time of year because they're so well tuned that training is just about staying ticking over. Like, they don't do high intensity training because they're, they're at their peak level at this time of the season. That's exactly what teams who win the league do. They go 3 0 up and then they take 60 minutes off and then they go again. Um, the next time and so I just had this feeling after Liverpool I was like this is what teams that don't win it do they they fuck up they they Mm. trip over the banana skin they put the custard pie in their face teams that win the league don't do that and and I had that feeling after Anfield and obviously I have it really strongly now because even if even if you're going for fourth, right? We lost three games in a row last April, and we still had fourth in our hands in May. We still threw it away, but it was mm. still in our hands in May when you're going for the league, particularly with the absurd standard that Man City set. Like, it's not enough. And 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 like, look. To be fair, I don't want that to sound massively critical of the team because it's. it's it's a miracle <laughs> that they're they're going to put up probably a 90-point season. It might not be enough. And yeah. uh, someone tweeted me earlier and just said, since losing um, at home to City in February, we've had nine league games. We've won seven and drawn two. Pre-City era, that would have stretched our lead at the top. We probably already would have won it by now. But unfortunately, we're being chased by a team who's won all of those games. And, but but yeah. that's kind of the irony. It did stretch our lead at the top. People kind of have forgotten that City have put some uneven runs on the board themselves. And I think the Mm -hmm. reason they're feeling that way is not because of their league form. It's because they 7-0'd Leipzig. 
and blew Bayern out of the water. And right? Burnley and like, in the cup. And Burnley in the cup. Because we're not that far away from a dreadful 1-0 win away at Palace, right? Where they got lucky with a late penalty. They should have dropped points there. They could have dropped points there. I don't think they look particularly good against Leicester, oh, by the way. And didn't they lost, lose to Spurs since... Or no, they dropped points at Forest. That's right. Just before they beat mm-hmm. us, they lost at Spurs. So, you know, I mean, they're, it, let's just say it this way. Their league form is good, obviously, because they're going to they're gonna probably hit close to 90 points this season or over 90 points, and they're either going to finish first or second. But I don't think it's been as imperious as people suggest, and I think ours has been pretty darn good. I, I mean, I look at it this way. I don't think we can go to the Etihad and lose and be champions. I don't think Same. that was on the table for us. Yep. That was on the table for us. No, I mean, but I, and I, I know I've said this so many times. If you want to beat Manchester City to a title, take points off them once during the season. If they beat you twice, I think you sort of have to say, okay, fair enough. You know what I mean? Like, and, and yeah, yeah, any other team, any other season, you're, you're champions without that. But I do think that you kind of have it in, in your hands. If you get to the very, very, very business end of a season and you're playing the team that wants to take the title out of your hands and you can't take any points off them and you haven't taken points off them that season, then fair enough. Fair enough. You were good. They were good. The two head-to-head games, they beat you twice and they took your title. Like, So that's that's it. And do I think we can go get something at the Etihad? I think we can. Do I think we're a team that can continue to play without Saliba and Alexander Zinchenko and be as good as we've been? I I don't. And I think that's showing up. I think it's a young team. It it needs all the talent it can get to do what it's being asked to do. Dropping 2-0 leads in consecutive games is difficult. I saw a stat that said... It's first time since Arteta's arrived. We've thrown away a two nil lead. We've done it now twice in three, you know, in consecutive weeks. To be fair, I don't know how many two nil leads we had before this season because we just weren't very good. But it does feel like it's still there. To me, it feels like it's still there. Oh, I know yeah. there are other people that are going to say, "Nope, it's not. You're out of your mind." But I, I, I also think, there. look, they got to play Bayern again in midweek, right? Uh, then, then they got to play an FA Cup. They're going to have fixtures all over the place. They're going to have Real Madrid twice. They're going to have to put the Brighton away game somewhere. City could be in a situation where they have, a, let's say, a three-point lead at the top of the table. And they have to go to Everton, go to Brighton, host Chelsea, go to Brentford in 10 days or something. Or 14 days. Mm-hmm. Does that mean they'll screw it up? They may not. They might win all four of those games. But if they've got a Champions League... And get good, God bless them, right? But if they've got a Champions League final on the distance and an FA Cup final on the horizon, and they know that that's out there, and they've got to go to Everton, go to Brighton, go to Brentford, and host Chelsea in 14 days with a three point lead in the title race, let's see. Do they blink? They might blink. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just, I I think anything's on the table. The other thing is, yeah, we're playing without Saliba Zinchenko. What if De Bruyne and Holland's hamstrings go twang and they miss 14 days? You know, it just it 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 would be way 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 too dramatic to say this is over, especially given that we are going to smoke Southampton at home on Friday, and we're going to rock up to the Etihad with a seven point lead in the title race. And even though they're going to have two games in hand, the psychology of that is going to be that they have to win that game. Mm-hmm. So I still think that there's a lot there for us. I'll finish on this. I think it's so 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 stupid, but it happened, so we have to talk about it. Do you care at all? 
that Odegaard was pictured signing Declan Rice's shirt. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe that's the thing I, I should care about, but I cannot care I'm, about. I'm sure it was like some kind of charity thing, or you know, probably. Does it even matter? Care. What? No. Like, is, am I missing? It a probably connection? happens all the time. All the time. Yeah. I mean, I remember we had players swapping shirts at halftime. That wasn't yeah, yeah. great. Right? It's, you don't it's clearly do like just, I don't know, some kind of charity thing. Maybe it's someone Declan Rice knows. Maybe, I don't know, a nephew or something who loves Erdegaard. Like, you know, no. Like, what, what? I mean, what are people suggesting that, like, that means he signed? <laughs> because all transferred are sealed by signing a shirt in April. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's out there, so I thought I'd ask you about it. It seems silly. Uh, look, what I'm really interested in, I'm really curious to see what Mikel does Friday if if Saliba and Zinchenko are still not available because I do wonder if we're going to get a tweak, if we're going to get a shack at left back or a party at right back and and move Ben White and are you know are we going to get are we going to get a tweak? Is someone going to come out of the starting line? I mean this is the hardest thing Tim because I don't think you want to start tearing up the recipe that's worked all season. Mm -hmm. But this playing long and pushing us back, playing over the midfield, pushing us back, it's worked two games in a row now. It, it depends who's available. I think if Zinchenko's available, then you don't touch anything. You just go out there and let him cook. But what's hard is you don't want to be going into the Southampton game not sure of how to line up with the City game next. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. And, oh, by the way, might go to the Etihad and see Saliba and Zinchenko out there and feel pretty, pretty good about our chances. So uh, we'll have a full week of stuff coming up for you. Probably try to squeeze in a rewatch. Um, by the way, everybody, uh, aside from Tim, well, Tim, it sounds like even a little bit hurting a bit from this weekend. Clive on an international, uh, inter, inter uh, continental, transatlantic, that's the word, flight. So obviously unavailable. Paul recovering from the weekend, as am I. Uh, we do have the Chicago event next weekend. So, like, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe need to respect the age curve a little bit here more <laughs> than I have, but we'll see. Um, thank you to everyone who was out. It was lovely to see you for the fundraiser stuff. I'll have a final update on that coming, and then we will do the drawing for the VIP, the last VIP box uh, ticket to see us win the league against Brighton in May, so that'd be great. Tim's on Twitter, Stominator. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. My name is Alex Smith, the Good Black Man Twitter, Yank and Gunner. Sorry about the voice, everybody. We'll get that back uh, on the right track. An announcement about another event, a couple of events coming up as well, too. So lots ahead. Let's just say this, right? Having met everybody and continuing to meet people, the one thing I love is we're, we're everybody's so great. So let's just continue to be great to each other. Continue to, you know, hope for the best, even if we're frustrated in the moment. And we'll see how it shakes out. We love you. We'll talk to you after Arsenal 10. Southampton.